Last week, I was lucky enough to get away from home for the first time since the quarantine. All the plans I made for travel during the pandemic had fallen through. It was incredibly eerie to fly out of an empty airport and then board a plane with less than a quarter occupancy. Everybody on my flight had on a mask, and there was this lingering worry in the back of my head that this would be the moment I get sick. I used this opportunity to fly out to Utah with the intention of renting a car and just driving off into any direction. I think Utah is the perfect place to escape if you want to fully disengage. You can drive for hours without seeing a town. Being there made me realize that it's more of a territory than an actual state, and given our current administration, I think that's a godsend. I'm sure they'd love to do nothing more than find ways to make a profit off the land and turn it into another husk of American entropy. The nature there is mind-blowing, and it made me realize how interior my thoughts had been. I think that goes without saying, but ever since I lost my job due to the pandemic, I've been stressing out on money and finding new employment pretty much all the time. I know I'm not the only person dealing with this, and so many other people have it much, much worse. Still... Every day, I felt consumed with anxiety about my health and work and relationships. And while I was driving, watching that expansive landscape constantly change in front of my windshield, I was listening to the audiobook version of Good Morning, Destroyer of Men's Souls, a memoir of women, addiction, and love, which was written by today's guest, Nina Renata Aaron. I think it's one of the most soothing and enjoyable experiences to hear a nonfiction book read by its author, especially when the narrative is as compelling as the one that Nina put on the page. There was a moment during the trip, I remember that I was sitting beneath the Green River Bridge. I was looking for a tag written by a famous freight hopper named Stobe the Hobo, who died in 2017. Watching freight hopping videos on YouTube was one of the weirdest but most enjoyable YouTube wormholes I dived into during the quarantine. I remember at the time, I was buzzing from this combination of new desert landscape and listening in on Nina's gritty, lovesick narrative. And while I sat there, I had this moment. I not only felt the clarity of nature and art, but I also shook off my self-pitting anxiety. And although the bridge was painted over and I didn't find Stobe's tag, I wanted to remember this moment. I took out my phone and recorded some ambient sound from the nearby train tracks I remember from one of his videos. I sat there taking in the dry desert heat, the surreal topography of mountains I'd only seen on television. During my conversation with Nina, she said, I hope the people who have a need for this type of book will find their way to it, and I hope they do as well. In our dialogue, we get into recovery, parasitic relationships, the meaning of catharsis, codependency, familial addiction, shame, resentment, and somehow, throughout all the heavy topics, we have a really fun and buoyant conversation. I think you'll enjoy it as well. I want to end this intro with an Al-Anon adage from Nina's book that really resonated with me, and it goes, Serenity is giving up the hope of a different past. read your book but I also listened to the audiobook version while I was in Utah and I have to say it's one of my favorite experiences especially with the addiction memoir is listening to it especially when the author reads yeah. it so it's a uh, it's a trip to uh, be speaking to you so shortly after spending about <laughs> eight hours boy. with you <laughs> oh that's so cool yeah recording that was really um a kind of surprisingly profound experience it was wild to read it out loud and by the end I was really um emotional which I wondered I haven't listened to it but I wonder whether it's like you know evident in my voice toward the end of the book I just like I could barely get I mean I had done such a good job of like reading it and the the sound engineer was so pleased and was like wow it's like we're just listening to your audiobook we barely have to edit anything or do anything you must read out loud all the time and I felt like such hot shit and then by the end I was like so emotional I could not get the words out and it took such a long time so we used up all that time we'd saved at the end I think you do a really great job at, at telling it and the book is incredibly, you know, an it is an emotional journey just to listen to it. So I imagine the I you know, the the process of having to read your book out loud from beginning to end must have been hugely profound and and moving. Did you 
did you learn anything about like what you had written during that process? Did something in the text kind of become more evident to you that wasn't before? Um, that's a very good question. I don't know if, um, I don't know if anything in the text became more evident, but I had worried throughout the writing process that there wasn't really maybe enough of a narrative arc. And, um, and in reading it, I was kind of like, oh no, there is, because by the end, <laughs> you know, I was like, um, you know, something about reading it made me feel like some degree of detachment from, it felt like I was reading about characters, at, you know, certainly by the middle and onward, I was kind of like detached from the fact that this was me and my life. And I felt like I was reading a story and I got kind of invested in that story. And so I was very, um, you know, I think the I think the narrative arc by the end was sort of satisfying. I was like relieved that the relationship ended and relieved that she got sober, <laughs> even though the she was me. Do you listen to other audiobooks? I do. I really enjoy listening to audiobooks, especially when they are read by the author. There are a few this is probably not that nice to say, but there are a few audiobook readers who are like voice actors whose voices I just can't stand. And if I see their name, I, I like know that I'm not going to enjoy the book because there's something very, um, there's an, a sort of actor's affect, which to me is very different than the way that a, a writer or a hardcore reader would read a book. And, um, I, so there are, I sometimes really am looking forward to listening to a book instead of reading it. And I end up, uh, discovering that I won't be able to get through it because I don't like the voice, <laughs> but I've never had that experience when the author is reading it. It feels so intimate. And so, um, it's, it's really special to hear. It feels like an incredible gift to hear the author read their entire book. It's really wild. I'm always like, I can't believe this doesn't cost more <laughs> than, you know what I mean? Like then the book itself, it feels like a live performance or something. This is probably the wrong uh, format to bring up this analogy, but I always think that, you know, an audio book is the price of a cocktail or two drinks at a bar. And it feels like yeah. it should be the same price you would pay to go to the theater or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's really, it feels really special. I have to say my favorite audio books are generally ones about addiction. I love the addiction memoir genre, and it's initially how I found your book. And I don't want to totally lump your book in with other addiction memoirs because I think you, what you do is something much bigger than that, and you fill in a gap that is a missing component to all of those books. And I want to get into that as well, but I know from your book that you're a bit of a fan of the addiction memoir as well. Um, Absolutely. What are some of your favorites? Oh, I have so many favorites, and I also really love that genre. And I, I, um, it's been a source of solace for me for such a long time. I mean, I think some of my favorites in recent memory. I really, really liked Sarah Heppelow's book Blackout. Um, I think that book is really great, and I love The Outrun by Amy Liptrot. I really love Mary Carr's Lit. Um, that one is really extraordinary and, um, God, there are so many. And this is something that I, I really felt from reading your book was this like intense nineties nostalgia and not just because, yeah, totally. <laughs> and it's not just because your book took place in the nineties, but it really made me think about this atmospheric sense of sadness and heroin chic and tragedy that seemed to befall so many idols and heartthrobs during that time like when I was reading your book I really thought a lot about River Phoenix and not so much of him specifically as a person but the kind of character he seemed to encapsulate in yeah. uh, pop culture that had like this sense of tragedy and beauty and helplessness did you also feel those components of growing up in the 90s as well it's interesting. I, at some point I thought I should make my book a little bit less nineties, like, especially because, you know, I start writing about this relationship, which, you know, this ex of mine resurfaced later in life, but I write about when we first met and I was a teenager in the nineties and I just was very nineties and very grunge and punk. And I was working at tower records and I remember writing those parts and thinking, should I make this like a little bit less nineties? Cause it, was um 
felt like maybe a little much, but I just couldn't help it. It was like, I think that maybe my sensibility is just very nineties because even the later parts of the book, um, there is something I think about, uh, having grown up with definitely those kinds of, you know, heroin addicted heroes. I mean, I think I, I think of Kurt Cobain, but I mean, obviously there were dozens. And I think that there was still a little bit of a lingering, I don't know, I hesitate to say like glamour. Or, there was still something vaguely sexy that came along with like the menace of addiction or compelling. And I think that that's something that I really noticed had changed in my adult life. And like when I was in this relationship with my ex-boyfriend who was addicted to heroin and crack and many other things. But heroin addiction was something that because he was, is a really a brilliant person. We spent a lot of time talking about sort of like what heroin had represented at earlier points in time and what it, what opiate addiction now has become culturally. And, um, and it's really fascinating. I think that he was actually sort of like drawn to, I mean, admittedly was drawn to junkiedom as something that was still kind of lingeringly cool from the, you know, jazz greats or, you know, there was like this sort of, there was still a sense that, that you could be addicted to heroin and have like a creative life and that perhaps being addicted to heroin would facilitate a more creative life. And that I think in the sort of pharmaceuticalization of opioids and opiate addiction I, I don't know. I think like that has just completely disappeared. And so I, I feared in a way that I was like writing about heroin addiction in a way that was like a little bit maybe glamorized, but I also couldn't help that because that was sort of how I had experienced it. And my sister too, whose heroin addiction I write about in the book, um, that was terrifying. And it was also like, I couldn't deny it was a little bit titillating and a little bit cool to me because of when I grew up, I think. It's crazy to just think back on that time and think about how heavily the aesthetic of the heroin addict was in pop culture. You know, you saw it in fashion, you saw totally. it in music, you saw it in TV, even in the 90s. Like when you talk about like the jazz musicians that were addicted to heroin, there was this, you know, there was this uh, biopic about... Um, Chet Baker yeah. that was like filmed in black and white by this fashion photographer. I'm forgetting his name. And it was, you know, really showed him as this kind of beautiful, tragic figure. And obviously now the aesthetic of the heroin uh, addict is something that's like very blue collar and it's associated with middle America. And it is totally been like leached out of fashion and, and music to, you know, give or take a, a certain degree. But mm -hmm. what I always thought was um, missing from that time and missing from so many of these memoirs are the people that were the wreckage left behind from that, that to me was like, you know, one of the realest parts of being a, a an addict of any kind is all the people you fuck over yeah. to facilitate your addiction and um i'm always kind of surprised at how that that person or that component is missing it's always like a bit of a footnote in this <laughs> totally. person you already know is this fucking like narcissist and you're like what about the people that obviously paid for you or paid for your ability to do this and i felt that your book was it was so refreshing to read uh a book from that perspective that still, you know, delivered the goods, but brought that. I'm curious to hear more about that. Well, I'm really glad that you found it refreshing. And I think I say as much in the book, but I just was always reading those memoirs. And, and I mean, they're hugely entertaining because they are told by the sort of like who the person we understand to be the star of an addiction story but I also was always like, you know, I was going to family day when my sister was in rehab and I kept sort of being told at every turn by guidance counselors or whomever that this was like a family disease and that we all have this disease and that we all had to look at our own behaviors. And, and I did end up feeling kind of like a bit of a resentment that I was like, where the hell are the stories about people like us then? And, um, and when I got really deep into Al-Anon, 
and started getting really interested in the history of Al-Anon, which for anybody who doesn't know is like the 12-step recovery program for loved ones, friends and family of alcoholics and addicts. But I, I got, I sort of started to understand this gendered element to the whole history of the program. And one of the things that I came to understand was that um, that the men who had designed the program had designed it in such a way that like, there's obviously this very, what we call a searching and fearless moral inventory where, you know, you look at all of your wrongs and all of your resentments and you uh, make an amends for the mistakes you've made. But the amends making is like very kind of um, direct and very, uh, it's not supposed to be like a long process. You're like, you have taken stock of what you've done wrong, you apologize for it, and you're only supposed to do that if it's not going to really fuck up the other person's life or world in any way or if it's mm. not safe. And and I, and I in some of the literature, I think Bill W., who was a notorious womanizer, is also like, look, you know, if it's really going to bum out your wife to say that you had a number of affairs, for example, like you don't have to be so exhaustive with the details, you know what I mean? Right. And I was I was kind of like... Oh, the program is designed, I mean, this is sort of like a cynical, I don't, I think there's a lot of like nuance to be added here. This is, I'm kind of like being funny, but, but I do think that there, it was sort of um, designed in a way to like let the alcoholic off the hook in certain ways. It's like the alcoholics designed their sort of apology process themselves and, and and then you're supposed to be able to move on, which is actually really important to let go of shame and be able to like make a new life for yourself. That's a really important part of recovery. But I just realized that like they had sort of designed it so that there was only this kind of circumscribed space for their like quote unquote victims or like the people who'd been adversely affected by their drinking to like work their own shit out. But it wasn't supposed to be, I mean, nobody ever really like cared about you know, the wife's story. It's just like that person is just like home, you know, keeping the home fires burning and being growing their list of resentments or whatever. But, but I think that even the 12 step recovery programs designed to address that person's role still didn't like fully foreground that person. And I really was like so hungry for, I mean, I really was kind of following that, like Toni Morrison dictum that if, if there's a book you want to read and it doesn't exist, you have to write it because I just was, I wanted, I wanted, always wanted like an addiction memoir that was about just what a mess it is to like be on the sidelines of this thing and have it kind of destroy your world and to really take that person's position seriously, which I, I, I don't know. I'm sure maybe there are examples of, um, books or movies or that do that. I'm always on the lookout for them, but I never really found one where I felt like, you know, it like flipped the script and the person who was like paying the bills was the protagonist. Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, I don't know if I can say that there is one as well. Um, and it really, you know, everything you just said and, and reading your book really makes me think about the idea of you know what it what what it what it means to apologize and what it means to actually to be able to turn the page and what is catharsis mm -hmm. uh, especially when you're i'm assuming because you know uh, codependency was such a big part of your book you're in this like state of suspended animation waiting for that moment to come from someone else mm -hmm. and i guess this is maybe more of a question for you is did you feel like you were waiting for that to happen? And then at some point you had to kind of just be like, you know what? Fuck it. It's not going to, it's not going to come from outside of me. It has to come from me for me to be able to move on. Yeah, exactly. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think I was, you know, I mean, it's sort of like the, the, you know, central defining characteristic of codependency, but you do sort of like everything is oriented, you know, you just are living in relation to this other person and their, their disease and their mental health and their well-being And, and so, yeah, I think when it comes time to like repair or recover, or there is still this like 
this expectation that that that's going to happen in relation to this other person and that you know if x then y like if only he would stay sober then i would be able to let go of this particular resentment or if he stays sober for a year i can imagine like these feelings softening or something like that and i think really truly recovering from codependency is exactly what you just said it's about realizing like you know in ways that are both terrifying and also exhilarating like no one's coming for you no one's going to offer the grand apology that's going to fix this and and no one can ensure that this doesn't happen to you again only you can like only you can create the conditions for like a life where you don't end up in this kind of toxic dynamic with somebody and expecting that an apology is gonna yeah I mean I think that I think all the work is is personal work and that I remember just like kind of the dread of that realization I was just kind of like oh shit it's yeah. me like it's like I have to do I have to do this and I have to make this change because I was you know I had in the book, I think it's actually a bit condensed because I couldn't expect the reader to go through as many breakups and makeups as we actually did in real life. Um, but, you know, I mean, that relationship probably ended and started up again seven times or something. And each time I had like a little list of like what I thought he should do to like properly repent for <laughs> disappointing me or whatever. And, um, and it was like, it was a profound awakening when I realized that that had nothing to do with anything. It was like, it was all my work to do. You know, there's a line that you have that says, uh, like alcoholism, codependency is at its core a form of insincerity, of bullshit, and it feels terrible to be insincere. Uh, that line really stuck with me. Mm, mm, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I think that maybe I had to also get sober in order to sort of clear the way to see some of that stuff. But I think, because I certainly didn't see it before then. But I think that... Um, they really are quite similar. Like, you know, alcoholism and codependency are, I really do think that there's a lot of, um, you know, self trickery and manipulation at the core. You really believe, um, you believe that you're being sort of done to by the world and, um, and changing that belief is kind of painful, but, um, but it has been like life saving for me. When you're in the middle of that kind of situation, you forget that when you're on drugs, you're not you. But while it's happening, it really feels like it's happening to you. Mm -hmm. And codependency, I imagine, is like very similar in that way that you're so used to giving your all and throwing it into this black hole that just takes and takes and takes. And that becomes like, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'm assuming it must work just like drugs in the sense that it feels good in this really awful, toxic way. And there's some sort of like satisfaction to it that becomes, you know, habitual. Totally. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I, I um, talk about that a bit in the book, but I think there is this way that culturally we sort of, you know, it's easier to just sort of like look down on people who are in those kinds of relationships or dynamics. And I think I wrote the book in part because there's so much, there's really powerful shame that comes from like, you know, being like the girlfriend of a bad guy. It's like, you know, something that we are quick to denigrate in our culture. And, and I think it is more complicated, especially in the sense that there really is like a payoff. Like I think a lot of people who end up in that dynamic are not only like maybe to use the language of addiction, like hooked on the hit of like helping somebody or, you know, being needed, but also when you're living your life next to somebody who's really fucked up, you really do feel like righteous. I mean, you do feel smug and you feel almost always like you're in better standing in the world and I think people with low self-esteem really need that you know like I it, that enabled me for many years to be like god I'm not that bad my my financial situation or my dental situation or my relationships are like are not as bad as this person's and I think that that payoff is like that's its own high in a way like it really enables you to not look at your own stuff 
No, that makes perfect sense to me. And it makes me think about how the addiction memoir is this narrative container for depravity and truth. And then it has this hopeful component that makes it, you know, such a an enjoyable read. But I think what your book does that's different and that makes it unique is that it has this lovesick tone. And it really made me think a lot about Patty Smith's mm-hmm. book, Just Kids, in the sense that, um, you know, it was this memoir and it was this love letter to Robert Maplethorpe but when you really read it you're like damn this guy really took you for a loop I get that he was uh (laughs) this brilliant artist and uh you helped him get you know not fall on his ass and you know be murdered by some you know evil twink at a S&M bar (laughs) but you know like um I, I I really feel like people People forget what grittiness really is. Like, I think people have this really romantic notion about darkness and fashionable pessimism. But to me, like, really what grittiness really is, is unrequited love. You know, when you Mm -hmm. put that into a situation or a person and it doesn't come back, I don't know what's darker than that kind of lovesick situation. Mm, that's beautifully put. I would agree. I would agree. And I ended up sort of, I mean, to me, I think that's sort of what the book is actually about. Like, I really did want 100%. to like make, yeah, I wanted to make a certain kind of contribution to like expand the kind of addiction lit to include codependency again, because I think it has been sort of dismissed and maligned and forgotten. And I don't think the word has sort of made a resurgence in like the wellness kind of self carry Instagram space. But I don't think a lot of people really take it seriously or know what it is. And I really felt like it was due for like a revisit and an upgrade. But I also, to me, the book is about love and how we ought to, you know, how we think about it and where those ideas come from and how fucked up some of those ideas are. And, and so you know, when I was saying that the narrative arc kind of pleased me when I read the whole book out loud, one of the things that I did feel, you know, I mean, there are so many things along the way that you're like, oh, bad word choice. Or like, you know, when you read your own Mm -hmm. whole book, you're just like, oh, but by the end I was like, this really is a book about this incredibly painful process for me of letting go of a certain idea about love. And that idea adhered in this particular person and in this relationship, but it was the product of so many influences and my family stories and so many pop songs and soul songs and poems. And, and, and I still am in the process, I think of sort of like grieving that idea that that's, that that tormented love is something is the highest thing to strive for. I don't really know what to replace it with. I haven't figured that out yet, <laughs> but but I have, I think, let go of it. And it's funny that you bring up, you know, all these like songs and poems and, you know, all of this media that you've taken in because it made me think about a lot of those things as well. And it also gave me a, a reality check in terms of what toughness is. You have a, a lot of like more academic sections in it. And one of mm-hmm. them is, uh, you know, a rather long se- section about uh, Eric Fromm. And he has a quote that I remember from a while back. And it's like, one cannot be deeply responsive to the world without being saddened very often. And <laughs> obviously, you know, the, the section made me think of him. But the book in general made me think about that quote, especially reading it during this time. Um, and that you know, you, you have to be resilient to have a clear minded reaction, but interaction with the world. And your book really felt like this, um, this sense of clarity for you. And I'm curious, like before you wrote it, did you already arrive at that sense of clarity or did that clarity arrive to you later? Um, good question. That clarity, I think arrived as I wrote the book. I mean, I think that I, um, I wrote a proposal for this book in a kind of like fever. I, I had the idea for this book and I sort of knew I needed to write it. And I went to the desert 
with one of my best friends and we like locked ourselves away to write things we were working on for like five days. And this proposal, I feel like it like dropped from the sky and I sort of like knew exactly what I had to do. And then, but I wasn't like, well, I mean, <laughs> I think I was, uh, still drinking, depressed and, um, and I feel it's so incredibly corny but I think I like sort of wrote my way to this greater clarity and by the time I was writing the conclusion of the book I was thinking like holy shit I actually I wrote my way here and um that's the kind of thing that I would probably barf if I heard somebody else say it but it really was true for me you know when I when I wrote the proposal I was still so um enthrall to this relationship and to this idea of love and to this person and and like part of what I really felt I needed to do was like set down our love story in like a so that we could become part of like that institution like Romeo and Juliet style like that I think that that was I wanted to write about codependency I wanted to write a memoir that would like be the literary memoir of codependency because I had always wanted that but I also wanted to just like it was like an ode to this love and by the end of the book I was so I had been sort of like spit out once and for all at the end of that delusion and I and I just I think wrote in a very different tone certain sections I was able to like I just was able to see more clearly I was also in like heavy duty Al-Anon throughout the whole process and that was really like informing my I was just like going to meetings and, and like, you know, trying to like walk the walk and also listening to people talk about these experiences and really like soaking it in. So that also helped probably. But yeah, I definitely arrived at, I mean, I feel like it's sort of a different person after writing this book, which is wild. It's funny because I've ne never been to Al-Anon. I've been, to, I've been in rehab before, so I feel like I've been both the, uh, <laughs> the victim and the perpetrator are a lot of situations <laughs> in your book. <laughs> um, but I have to say that um, when I was in rehab, I uh, I really loved it. And I... What did you love about it? It was the first time in my life I felt a sense of grace. Mm, that's cool. And I, I don't know if I could totally describe what that means, but I... Uh, you know, you're around so many people that are hurting or have been hurt and you're hearing these stories and you're having this kind of dialogue that you realize you don't really ever have in your day-to-day -day life. Mm -hmm. And I'm assuming that while you were thinking about writing this book and continuing to be in that headspace, which is like a headspace you can't get into through family and friends, you know what I mean? Like you can't yeah. just like bleed out all the time and expect people to put up with you. <laughs> but in that situation, you can, and it's encouraged. And that to me, I guess, is the grace that I was talking about that felt um, deeply like spiritual and uh, huge. So I'm curious, like first, I'm a desert rat. Which desert were you in? And what point were you in in your relationship when you had submitted this proposal? I was um, in Joshua Tree. And I was, um, I was not in the relationship. But then there was another round of the relationship during the writing of this book. And, um, and... And we were both sober. I mean, I got, I think I got sober. Uh, I had written the proposal. I got sober um, maybe a month later. And that was kind of bizarre. I end up writing about that in the conclusion of the book. But it was sort of like, um, I felt like I was like hit over the head by the universe or my higher power or however anyone wants to think about that. But I, I got sober and sold the book within like a couple of weeks and I felt like kind of like, okay, I got it. I felt like the universe was like, here you go, stupid. Like you just had to do this one thing. <laughs> now, now you can have whatever you want and be the thing you want to be. And, um, uh, but the desert was like really, uh, I, I 
the desert feels very magical and very lucky to me and always has. And now it really does because I think, um, I think it's really a space of, um, creative. It's a space of inspiration for me. And I know what you're talking about with that grace, Leslie Jameson, actually in her book, the recovering one of the best. Yes. She does an amazing job of sort of like really talking about that, that just like this kind of, the space that is produced in a meeting, which is so unlike any other context, especially in adult life, which is so full of bullshit and insincerity and, totally. and, um, you know, so many conventions that like, we just, there are so many ways we have to behave at work and in other spaces and meetings are just the space apart that are so, so intense and so pure. And I remember when I first got sober and I was always hearing, um, people say that they felt bad for people who weren't alcoholics. And I was like, Oh my God, you guys are annoying. You know, I didn't really understand that. And then once you like soak up enough of the culture of meetings and of that raw honesty and just adults talking about real shit, which is just so unusual. I really came to understand now I do sort of feel sorry for people who don't get to do that. And, and Al-Anon is very similar. And I think it's, it's different in the sense that I think even people in Al-Anon don't always, uh, we don't have the same language or the same sort of shared understanding always about, and I say this in the book, but I think this kind of conceptual material is rather slippery. And I don't know if that's because the condition itself is or because it's like ill-defined or misunderstood or it hasn't had the same sort of resources directed toward it because it's like a woman's problem and and less important and less life-threatening. What do you mean, though, by uh, by codependency? Yeah, I think that, like, sometimes I'll sit in, a, in an Al-Anon meeting and I'll think, like, I, I think that, so, that people in the room themselves would be hard-pressed to, like, define this thing. Like, what is this thing that we have that's wrong with us? And right. it sometimes is the subject of, like, it'll come up in meetings and people will, not everybody uses the word codependent and people talk about enabling and, but people have sort of different expressions of codependency. Some are more martyrs, some are more type A and controlling. And, and, and so sometimes it seems like there's, um, there's less of a sort of shared understanding of like what the fundamentals are that we're talking about. And so I think that can sometimes detract from the, doesn't always feel as like spiritual and profound as an AA meeting can. I, that's my personal feeling. And I think, um, when you find your way to like an incredible Al-Anon meeting, it's exactly the same and it's really incredibly profound. But, um, but I do feel part of what, part of what, made me want to write this book was that I was like, there's just something kind of janky about the, it, the, the Al-Anon feels like a corollary to the much more important story of male alcoholism and AA. And it is exactly, that's exactly what it is historically speaking. And it is like its own program and it's remarkable and it's also life-saving and it's incredible, but it's not as robust and it's not as, it's not as much of a thing. And so part of me wrote this book hoping like, I don't know, maybe somebody will sort of take that up and I don't know. I mean, it's like unorthodox to try to change the program, but maybe there's some way that we sort of reinvigorate a conversation about this condition that enables us to come up with like better diagnostic tools or better, better treatments, you know? It also makes me think that like when you're dealing with this problem or this, you know, what a disease or issue of codependency, I think, and, and just hearing you talk about it, it makes me realize that I think one of the best ways or one of the best ways, at least for me to even understand it is through dialogue is through, mm-hmm. uh, art, like the book that you wrote. And I think it, it definitely seems like there isn't enough dialogue around it. So you don't have the tools to, to accurately explain what you're going through because I think, you know, as an addict, I'm assuming most addicts realize that there's something of a parasite and Mm -hmm. for a parasite to live, it needs a host. Does the host have its own narrative? You generally Mm. not, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's almost Mm -hmm. like 
the negative space that this thing can move into to just keep (laughs) sucking and you know the space is just kind of left behind and I'm sure it must feel like super dehumanizing to be in that in that situation so your concentration is just more about like survival and not being taken advantage of yes absolutely and I think yeah for me writing about that was also kind of a way to make visible that labor which is often women's labor and Mm -hmm. it's sort of hopefully part of a larger kind of feminist project to to make all of that plain, you know, and to say that, yeah, the, the parasite and host is a particularly stark analogy. I like that though. And it is true that, you know, we're, we're just not inclined to, I mean, you think of, there are so many addict stories that are like a hero's journey kind of. Yeah. And um, all the time. And yeah. And I think, um, yeah, it was very important to me to like, to write about, or right from the perspective of the person who's doing that person's dishes, you know? I mean, <laughs> those, <laughs> those sections actually hit the hardest when you talked about doing the dishes and the laundry and all like the small tasks that like kind of make up a human life that this person yeah. wasn't doing. Uh, that kind of definitely helped put it into a perspective where I was just like, oh man, this is, <laughs> this is rough. And like, I get it. You know what I mean? Cause I think yeah, when I'm it's glad. done to, you know, when it's done in this like really hardcore way, like where you're like, I'm getting fucked over and this person stole money from me. It's like, it, it, it's so big. It's like a little abstract, you know totally. what I mean? Cause you're just like, okay, that's fucking terrible. Like I would just leave. And then you kind of have no, um, way to relate to it but in those like small moments especially when there's so much like love and affection involved you really get like a really solid grasp on it and when you put your life into this narrative in the book and you know this this issue with codependency as components with an ex and your sister did you see anything about your past differently or are there any moments that you were just like oh shit, I still have work. This thing needs to be changed. Yeah. I mean, I definitely, I mean, I think I just saw my own role more clearly. Like I think that I, um, I had sort of made it a point to understand, you know, I mean, it was, I was always kind of obsessed with understanding my sister and like what drove her in this, self-destructive direction and and in my relationship I was obsessed with sort of like you know understanding his whole history and what his childhood had been like and what were what were all the sort of like threads that you know there were all of these ways of kind of like not paying attention to myself and learning not to kind of honor my own instincts or even be able to hear them but also just like not seeing my own part and it was only, you know, I mean, it really did take a lot of Al-Anon for me to realize, like, okay, if, the, if, I, if we have this toxic dynamic here, he's 50% of it, and I'm 50% of it. I'm not, like, right. being acted upon. Like, I am the other half of this equation. And so I think um, I think mostly in the writing, I, I was forced to look at how much I had um, just that a certain kind of a certain kind of um, victimhood had been like a pillar of my identity for my whole life, which was like kind of easy because I was a middle child and I was sort of like the quietest of my, me and my sisters. And, um, and I, I think like, you know, it was like not a leap for me to, to like kind of feel a little bit put upon in the world because I was like sort of called upon by my parents to be there you know, especially by my mom to be here sort of confidant as all this shit was unfurling with my sister. And, but I don't think I really understood until I was, you know, really deep in recovery and writing this book, just how much like I didn't know who I was without that idea of victimhood, like powering everything that I had to do all this shit for other people and that the world would fall apart. You know, if I was to sort of like stop for a moment that that these other lives would not be able to keep going right. and that that the arrogance at the core of that 
is really like what made itself plain to me. Like that, that, that was, um, that that was a preposterous and really arrogant and kind of delusional way of thinking. And it, and, you know, I was able to sort of let myself off the hook a little bit by being able to understand how I had gotten to be that way in the first place. But I really could see my own, I could see that I just didn't know who I was if I wasn't doing a lot of stuff I didn't want to do for other people or not even that I didn't want to do, but like that I resented, you know, without resentment, I was like, felt like I didn't quite know who I was in the world, which is sad. Yeah. But I mean, I think it made you be able to write this book, which is a totally seamless memoir with no easy escapes. And it's a complete portrait of a person. Thank you. Oh, you totally deserve it. Like, tell me about the writing process. Did you journal during this time or did this kind of just, did you just have to sit out there in Joshua Tree and, you know, (laughs) remember (laughs) all of this? And if it makes you feel any better, I've done the same thing. I've actually also lived in Joshua Tree for a month to get away from stuff. And I don't know what your situation was, but I lived like in the back of like a store by a parking lot and it was like kind of (laughs) rough. (laughs) It wasn't quite the uh, (laughs) fantasy I thought it was going to be. Yeah, I had the fantasy. I had like a very well-appointed like kind of hipster Airbnb. (laughs) That's awesome. Oh my God. I had this dark, this dark apartment that had no furniture. It just had a bed and some shelves and um, it was behind that thrift store that's on the line of Joshua Tree and 29 Palms. Um, Yeah, but I feel like that's probably, that might have been a better place. I was like a bit too comfortable (laughs) where I was. I think that might be a better place for like, you know, revelation. Uh, Hard (laughs) to say. There was a lot of dark nights of the soul on my end. (laughs) (laughs) I can imagine. Yeah, I was, um, I, I mean, I'm someone who has kept a journal intermittently but pretty steadily throughout my life and I and I have always had um notebooks where I have you know scribbles and and I've always been a letter writer and an email writer and a you know long email writer and I um I found I had like quite a lot to draw on which was really useful um there was a lot especially the 90s stuff you know when I'm 17 18 um my journals were so meticulous and I couldn't believe how much detail there was in there. So all of that stuff, I mean, that's, that was really fun because I think at one point I say that I had like a little fling with this guy I worked with and he left me this note, this flirtatious note. And like the note itself was glued into my journal. Like I had everything. Nice. And so in a way that was really, that part was fun. Um, but the writing was, it, you know, I, it was, it was really hard. I ended up sort of writing in these two modes, one kind of more academic where I was tackling the history of this stuff and, um, and one more sort of urgent and personal and, and sometimes doing the more academic writing was like, felt like a vacation. That was just so I could like breathe on those days because there were days when writing the personal stuff, especially about my marriage and divorce and depression. And, you know, it was just got so right. claustrophobic. Sometimes there were a lot of, um, a lot of tears and, but I was, I found that, um, I mean, I kind of, that was really like a mistake to write. I, I ended up, having sort of two separate books. One was like a history book and almost all of that got left out of this book and I would love to do something with it. But, um, and one was this, you know, really super personal thing. And, and I had to find some way to like fuse them, which I don't know. I mean, I just did that. I don't know if it's very successful, but I'm glad that there are, I'm glad that there is some history in the book because I I did feel like I wanted to say more than just here's what happened to me and here's like my story. But um, the writing process was grueling and also really, really satisfying. It really is. I came to sort of understand why writers are like, just get your ass in the chair or whatever. There's a million ways they have of saying like, just sit down and do it. And um, And I don't think I'd ever had the time or space or yeah, I'd never given myself permission to really write every day. And it 
really unlocks something. You like get to the next level of the video game. By the end, I was writing that the number of words I was writing was just absolutely astonishing to me. Like I think I wrote 45,000 words in a month or something like that. And I was just like, holy shit. Like I just didn't know that that was possible. And like, was there a fundamental change to your life that happened when you were finished with this? Um, kind of, I mean, I definitely feel, um, I think I've said elsewhere that it was really helpful for me because there was so much shame. I had a lot of shame about ending up in this relationship, staying in this relationship, being sort of stuck in it. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I think that something about like being able to contextualize it historically and, and sort of learn about this sort of this kind of like shadow history of women navigating this illness and see my story as part of a larger tapestry kind of was very, that was very like freeing for me to not just feel like just pathologized at the individual level, but to feel like this is like a real thing. That was very something about sort of like telling that story was very freeing, but also I think just being done with this book and having sort of like externalized it every time I think about it I all the kind of analogies I think with are very much about like getting it out of my system and it really really felt a lot like giving birth and there's something really it does feel like another part of my life has started now that this is sort of like outside of me so was it cathartic yeah very Yes, definitely. I mean, it was definitely also, it's really hardcore to like share this kind of stuff with, with the reading public. But I think I also kind of trusted that the reading public would, the people who need this book, want this book, have an appetite for this book, will find their way to it. And I was like really longing for that. But the part where I had to like show it to people in my life, for example, Mm. (laughs) and, and like, you know, just know that all the people who know me could find out all these things about my life that, that navigating that was, um, emotionally a little bit tricky, but ultimately it's been very cathartic. And I think I, um, I love that. I don't have to like pretend to be that normal anymore, you know? And that like, <laughs> you know what I mean? That's, yeah, I, yeah, I do. <laughs> that's usually somebody asked me that, like, are you afraid for people to read it? And I said, I'm so relieved that I never have to pretend to be normal again to like my, you know, the parents of my kids, friends, or like, I'm just kind of like, I can just be officially weird. And that has been really liberating. <laughs> <laughs> what does catharsis mean to you? Like what, it's funny because I think this term gets thrown around a lot, especially when people write memoirs or especially when a memoir has to do with them going through a difficult situation. But I guess I'm personally never really sure, like, what does that mean? Mm. That's a good question. I don't know that I know exactly what it means, but I do think in my case, um, I mean, I think of catharsis as sort of, like the enabling of new possibilities. And I think there's a line um, that's like an Al-Anon slogan that I quote at the end of the book, that's serenity is giving up the hope of a different past. I literally have that highlighted. Really? Yes. I love that so much. (laughs) Me too. That was like, I'll never forget, like when I heard that line, I think something changed for me. And I think that, I think that the way that we enable newness or rebirth or reinvention is by letting go like letting go of the idea of a different past that letting go of the idea that we could ever change anything that has happened before. And that is painful, but I think that's that line has stuck with me now for years. And I think that that is kind of how I understand catharsis and and being able to I mean pardon the cheesiness but to like close the book on this chapter of my life and you know I wouldn't say that the work of letting go of this relationship or my guilt and shame and all my shitty feelings like that that work is ongoing but I do think being able to um 
really surrender the hope that I could change any of these things, that I could change these people, that I could change their decisions, that I could change the decisions that I had made that led me to this point. Trying to let go of that has been, that's catharsis. When I read that line, it it definitely made me realize that so much of my own anxiety is from imagining a different past and mm-hmm. giving myself this easy out that if I had done something different, then this would be, you know, this, this phase in my life would be different or whatever. Mm-hmm. You just start to, you realize that like when you see yourself as a victim, you give yourself a lot of easy escapes and you give yourself exactly. a lot of dead ends. And the more you like dig back into something you did in the past, the more like ammunition you have to just build up walls and, and, and close yourself in. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And I think that that's really, I think the decision to write this book, even though I didn't know it at the time when I decided to write it. And, um, you know, I think that I, I, it was kind of part of a larger decision not to sort of dwell in that exact kind of suffering any longer, you know, because it is kind of pointless that, that regret and that, um, backward looking it's just not it had kind of like colored my entire life to that point and I actually really loved that the melancholy of that (laughs) and you know I will always sort of be drawn to art about that and songs about that and you know like being sort of haunted by a fucked up past is like I will forever find that incredibly compelling and I will forever be haunted by mine in some sense but making a decision to sort of like set down that kind of suffering in order to like have a better life um has been really really incredible for me absolutely and then you also realize that that art is made with the realization that is part of a process of the artist moving past it mm-hmm. and I think your book is in a way this excavation of self that is exactly that and it's done in a way that's like both personal and historic and it allows you and hopefully you know it definitely did this for me and hopefully does this with other readers where it allows them to also have the tools and the the dialogue to or you know whatever the desire for dialogue to move past that i hope so that's definitely my hope for it i'm glad that it had that effect on you to cap this thing off, uh, I'm surprised that I haven't asked this question to any other, any past guests or myself or any of my friends, but give me a read on your heart and mind now that life seems to be coming back to normal and we've just gone through a pandemic. We've just gone through a civil war. There's a sense of cultural upheaval coming out there you put out this intensely personal revealing and cathartic book during this time like give me a give me a read of your heart and mind right now Mm. that um that's (laughs) tough to sum up it's such a such a strange time to be alive i feel like the having this book come out in the middle of this pandemic was really um, bizarre. And I feel grateful that because I've been sort of like in training to look on the bright side, thanks to (laughs) my recovery program. I mean, really, I was thinking about if this had happened, I mean, I probably wouldn't have been able to write this book at another point in my life. But if this, if I had my first book out during a global pandemic before I was like deep in recovery, I would have, had such a self-pitying view on the whole thing. Like I would have really been like, of course this would happen to me. You right. know what I mean? And, um, and I was super grateful that I was like, wow, I have a new lens on the world. Cause I was like, Oh, all this literary community is springing up virtually. And I'm able to read with all these people I wouldn't ordinarily meet. And, you know, I was able to sort of be a little bit positive about it. But, um, and as for the kind of, civil cultural unrest uprisings hopefully revolution that we're witnessing unfolding right now i mean i i can only say that i i have sort of paused on you know promoting my book or my personal work to participate and and read and listen and protest and donate and 
Um, I really, I really fucking hope this is not just like lip service. I mean, certainly at the, at the street level, it feels very real and very, um, possibly unprecedented and really historic. But, um, I've also been absorbing a lot of like corporate messaging on Instagram about how suddenly overnight every industry is completely committed to justice and equality. That's the grossest part. Oh, I feel speaking of being a nineties kid, like I could not be more fucking cynical and grossed out by that. And I hope, I mean, hopefully they're held to a new standard and hopefully, you know, I don't know, but that has been really fascinating to witness. It's definitely, um, it's exciting and it's also horrifying. Um, and I, you know, but, but as far as, I mean, I think I feel sort of well equipped to like, I, I have better tools to not like dwell in negativity. I really see some hope in this moment, maybe not for the world at large, but I, I, it feels, it feels good to be, out in the street with a lot of like-minded people and to connect with a sense that, you know, the disgusting world that the president is trying to make is not the one that many of us want and that we're not going to sit quietly, but it's definitely, it's been a, it's been such a strange time to have this really personal thing out. It feels kind of at once irrelevant to the conversation. And also it feels I feel good to have something out in the world that, you know, I trust that there are some people who maybe need to find their way to this book, and I hope that they will. Oh, I don't think it's irrelevant at all. I think right now is this, even for myself, it's been this intense time of introspection, and but I'm so happy that I've been able to to not only have the time to be part of this um, cultural moment. It's kind of mm-hmm. amazing that all of this happened at the same time where so many people aren't at work. And I'm sure in the past, like people have wanted to protest and have wanted to do these things, but just didn't have the time and they couldn't like give up their commitment to making money. That, that like the little punk rocker in me does really delight in that. Cause right? I think that when these things happen, the powers that be think like, let's just ride this out. They'll get tired of protesting. And right now it feels like we're <laughs> like, we'll do this all fucking year. Like yeah. people just, we have nothing else to do. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. <laughs> do you have any definitive like stories from the pandemic? Oh man. Um, I mean, I'm sure that I do nothing I can think of at this moment. It's been such a, it's just been such a strange time. I feel like time itself just has no meaning any longer. No. Do you, I mean, do you have something? So like a story? I guess kind of. Yeah. I don't know if this is going to translate to podcasts, but there was a point where I wanted to get a new bike and I got this like piece of shit clunker off of Craigslist. And it was for me at the time, this like huge sense of freedom. Cause I, during this time I lost my job. Um, I was like oh. working out to fucking prison videos. I was <laughs> jogging in the fucking cemetery. My life like turned, I like, it was like an Adam's family B cut or something. <laughs> I mean, it was like, it, it got ridiculous. I was like super depressed and I was just like, man, I need a bike. I need to just like, I'll go out in my mask and I'll just, you know, ride out to wherever. And I went to get it. Uh, I went to get a repair and the place that is by my house was only open like two hours a day. And I dropped it off and they said, yeah, come back on this day. And I came back that day and it was raining and I was just like pissed off about like money. It took me forever to get on unemployment. So at that time I wasn't even on it. So I was just like hemorrhaging money and just like just work the fuck up. And I got to the store in the rain nonetheless, and it was closed during the time they told me to come and I called them and I just was like, just 
pissed. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's the yeah, most, like, yeah. um, privileged white guy anger. Just, like, I'm going to call these fuckers and I'm going to, like... Can I talk to your manager? Yeah, yeah, I was the Karen <laughs> in this situation. Like, just, like, I'm going to rip into them. And at first they were kind of giving me the runaround and... And then she eventually was like, listen, my mother just died. She got the the virus. And where I live oh, is okay. right in the uh, epicenter. I'm in Woodside, and the epicenter is in Elmhurst, which is wow. literally the next yeah. neighborhood over. So it's been especially tense where I live. And I remember going back to the shop the next day when they said that they were open. And, you know, it was just me and her in the shop because everybody had to wait outside. And we both had our masks on. And I remember like the intensity of her gaze and mm. just um, for the like, I guess maybe only time in my life, just looking into somebody's eyes because you can't see their face. Yeah. You know, I had my mask on. She had her mask on. And I basically just went there to apologize. And, you know, we started talking about her mother and, you know, I just felt like fucking terrible. I still feel terrible. Um, but it was a really like profound moment and it definitely changed my perspective on the whole thing. And it made me realize like what a dickhead I was. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. That's a really heavy story. That's a kind of beautiful story. I don't think everyone has had that experience of the, of it sort of registering as real. And I haven't really. I've been very um, lucky to be relatively insulated. I know a few people who have had it and survived. But it's interesting because I think that um, that kind of experience probably made it very real and did probably make you very grateful or have a different view on the whole thing. Yeah, it totally made me think differently. And and it's just, it's just been strange to think um, now – how um, receptive I am to to the uh, to another person's eyes. You, you know, you're having this kind of mitigated um, social experience, and there's kind of no room for for bullshit. It's been just kind of like, what do you need? How can yeah. I help you? How are you? Yeah. If you want to talk, I let's have talk. Experience that. Wow, I like that. I hadn't really thought about it that way. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on this show. Uh, This has been really awesome. I'm glad we got to talk. Thank you so much for having me, Paul. It was really a delight, and I love listening to the show, and I'm really happy to be on. 